You're listening to a Corridor Business Journal podcast. It's time for straight talk about diversity, frank questions, honest answers, and real insights. It's Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union, with your hosts, Sadika Bodka of Nikea Diversity Consulting, and Anthony Arrington of Top Rank Professional and Executive Search Firm. Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union, is a Corridor Business Journal podcast. On today's episode, Marcus Bullock, co-founder and CEO of FlickShop. We're live at EntreFest 2021 at the Olympic Theater in the Nouveau District of Cedar Rapids. Green State Credit Union is proud to sponsor Diversity Straight Up. Established in 1938, Green State is Iowa's largest financial cooperative serving nearly 250,000 members of all walks of life. Green State's products include checking accounts, loans, investments, insurance, commercial services, mortgages, and credit cards. Profits are returned to members in the form of better rates on deposits and loans. We encourage you to learn more at greenstate.org. Green State is federally insured by the NCUA and is an equal housing opportunity lender. Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union, is also sponsored by Alliant Energy. Entrepreneurs in the house, let's hear it for your hosts, Sadika Bodka and Anthony Arrington. Welcome to a special episode of Diversity Straight Up, coming to you live from Entrefest 2021. So who's having a fabulous time here at Entrefest? I'm your host, Sadika Bakta. And I'm Anthony Arrington. We're going to have a good time here. We got a, we got a great guest. We're going to have some great conversation. And we're going to get real for a little bit here. Yeah, so put your biases aside, strap on your seatbelt, and get ready for a wild ride on diversity straight up. We're always keeping it real. But something's on my mind before we get to Marcus. There's something on my mind. It seems as if um, there have been many state laws that have been passed recently um, that is uh, affecting diversity training that really impacts schools and universities as well as state agencies. And any type of curriculum that is revolved around racial oppression, sexism, critical race theory, etc., depending on which state laws there are, it could be any or all of them. And it's worrisome because it's very confusing. The laws can be very gray. And if it's confusing for us to be able to talk about some of these topics, then what is the schools and the universities going to do about it? Because we know that we need to engage in these critical dialogue, especially when you're thinking about race and sexism. Think about it. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, year after year after year, can you guess the top two complaints that are filed by people? Race. Race. And, sex. and well, they call it sex, but yes. Mm-hmm. And about last year, 32% ch- charges that were filed were race-related, and then about 31% were sex-related, yeah. followed by national origin, about 9%. So 
how can we bring those numbers down knowing that those numbers actually are very, you know, underreported because people fear retaliation. I know that with clients that I work with, I can foster safe spaces without blaming and shaming. Yet we still need to address these topics because as you can see, they're being impacted and it's going to the EEOC. This is the schools, this is the academia, and then it's going yeah. into what? The workforce. Here's the challenge. If, if, we're being, if we're being brutally honest, I'm glad you brought that up, by the way. If we're being brutally honest, you know, and I, can, I just speak from my perspective and my lens, um, it's an attack. I believe when you, when, you, when you read the laws, particularly we can talk about the, the law in Iowa, H, HF802, when you, when you read the laws, it is, to me, an intent ability to suppress voices and suppress a dark history in our country. And until we can have that honest conversation about our dark history in our country, we're going to continue to have these challenges. And so what we've got is we've got people who are fearful to have this conversation and fearful because it's a blame. Because we tell the truth about our dark history, suddenly somebody else is to blame for that, sitting in the audience or sitting next to you hearing that, when the, the object is never to point a finger at you, the person, right? It's to have the conversation about where the country has been and where, we're, where we can go. And until we can get to a point where when people are able to have the conversation and say, it's not me, they're not pointing the finger at me, the person, they're pointing the finger at the history, and we need to be able to deal with that. And that's, that's why, the challenge. True, and that's why it's very important, and this is advice that I give, and uh, when you work with any DNI consultants, um, facilitators, trainers, ensure that they have the credentials, they have the expertise and the skill set to create safe spaces, yep. because guess what? Lived experience alone is not going to create that environment that is so needed, yep. because blame, shame, guess what? It's not going to get us anywhere. We need to look at addressing it, acknowledging it, and coming up with solutions to move forward. Agreed, agreed. But I know that, Marcus, you want to share something. So, Marcus, <laughs> uh, any thoughts you have on we this? We could go all day on that. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I like to learn. I like to listen and learn. I mean, I think it's interesting to, you know, I hear the conversations. Um, <laughs> you know, I was talking to one of my sons, one of my son's teachers at his school. And... She asked a question, you know, Marcus, you know, she asked to the room, you know, how do you all feel about some of these conversations that are being had and, you know, let's, because my son, he's 10 years old. And we have to be granular with the 10-year-old classroom. And bring it to a level of granularity, the question we asked him, you know, do you feel that there's, do you feel that we should continue, Marcus, do you think that, Marcus Jr., do you think that we should continue to celebrate these holidays that, or these monuments or these statues that are aligned with some of our dark past. This is a very, very, you know, granular way of introducing him to this conversation. And he's, you know, he's asking the questions like, I don't know, I mean, are there other people who are not celebrating that have a dark past? And the teacher was like, well, we don't know who, if we aren't celebrating those people, I thought it was a great question from him and it made me think, He's like, well, the teacher said, we don't know those people, and we don't know how to celebrate, we wouldn't know how to celebrate those people as a country that are aligned with another dark past. And so I'm like, well, look, here's the thing. I come from the hood. I was born and raised in the hood, unapologetically. Mm -hmm. Two things here. One, 
I have to walk into every room, including this room yesterday, and I have to walk in and say, hey, listen, before I even mention anything about the technologies that we're building, the solutions that we want to introduce to the country, I committed a carjacking. I did it. I did it. And although I got sentenced to eight years for it, and I got sentenced to eight years for it at 15 years old, I did it. And I have to acknowledge that. There's a sense of accountability that has to come with it. And the only way for me or anyone else to sit in that courtroom, the victim who was the victim of that carjacking, the family members of the victim who was a part of that carjacking, my mother, my grandmother, the invisible victims mm -hmm. who we don't talk about that are victimized by the carjacking, there's no way for them to get through it until it gets to the point where Marcus can walk into a room and unapologetically say, oh, I'm sorry, no. Apologetically say, I did it. I did it. We have to acknowledge that first. The second thing I said in the classroom, which was a little awkward because I come from a neighborhood where I can tell you all the biggest dope dealers in my neighborhood, right? And I can tell you all about all the famous dope dealers across the country who got locked up. And because I'm from D.C., one of the bigger ones was Rayful Evans. Rayful Evans, he was known for supplying the District of Columbia with over 65% of the cocaine that permeated across the district that led to the District of Columbia being the murder capital of the country during the era where he was selling, when he was selling drugs. Rayful Evans is celebrated inside of the neighborhoods I lived in. If I'm being honest, he's celebrated in those neighborhoods. Can you imagine having a Rayful Edmonds day on the calendar? It sounds stupid, doesn't it? It sounds crazy acknowledging all of the catastrophes that has aligned with Rayful Edmonds, but there was so much gain from the people who worked under Rayful Edmonds' crew. They made a lot of money. They bought homes, they bought land and property and material possessions and cars, and they made investments inside of wills and trust for their, other, for their children to be able to continue to grow. There were people who went to colleges and universities that were uh, you know, descendants of Rayful Edmonds and his family members. And they went on to live amazing lives as a result of the drugs that Rayful Edmonds sold early in the day. Those people are living incredible lives now and ain't nobody knocking on their door and telling them they got to get their degree back now that Rayful Evans is locked up. But it would sound crazy if we said we want to celebrate that and put Rayful Evans' day on side of the calendar. Or any of the other hustlers like Bumpy Johnson or any of the other people that we probably can name we've seen movies about. But we're so comfortable with saying we acknowledge that there's a dark past and people that have done things that have allowed for a level of privilege from a lineage of the people who've done those things, and yet we can't talk about that in the school simply because it hurts your feelings? You bugging. You tripping. Nah, so yes, don't ask. I mean, my 17 year old son is right. Let me, Marcus, yes. You're, Marcus Jr., you're right. Who are those other people? Rayful Evans is one. Are we gonna celebrate him? The teacher says no, we all gonna celebrate him, it's crazy. So yeah, we have to talk about the dark past of the others that don't mimic the people who look like me who don't get celebrated because of the craziness that they did. We have to be able to acknowledge and build accountability into the lives of the people who lived the earlier time. I mean, that's just, I mean, that's just my feelings about it. I'm like, you know. You know, you talk, that, uh, that's a great segue. I'm glad you said that, because you talked the other day about, in your keynote about storytelling. And this is kind of a segue into how you got into your business. And for, for our listeners who, some of you have heard the story about how you got into your business, uh, but some of our listeners hadn't. But as you moved into your business, talk about some of your 
strains, some of your challenges being a, a, a black man trying to start a business. Uh, well, and black maybe man you're starting a business. Maybe, that's, maybe that's you're, the challenge maybe, in itself. Yeah, yeah, that's the challenge in itself. But you had an extra challenge coming out of a penal system, having to deal with those mental challenges. Can you talk about how you overcame those challenges that maybe others didn't have and how that affects you as a businessman today, how, how that resolve affects your ability to, to, to continue forward today? I mean, so let's go to the end of that question, which is how does it affect, how does my past impact or affect the businessman that I am today? So. Like I told Mike, that I was sitting in the corner, I'm gonna have a conversation with you and I'm gonna let everybody else, you know, just eavesdrop in on this part of the conversation, yeah. right? <laughs> if I'm being honest for real, my past allows me, it gave me a superpower in the business, in, my, in, the, in the role of the CEO today. And the reason why that's the case is because the barriers that most entrepreneurs, I mean, I don't care, you can black, white, you know, it, it doesn't matter what nationality you come from, where it's just hard to run a business. I don't care, it may be a little bit more challenging to start a business and to continue to scale a business and build relationships than for your business to be able to grow and thrive. But nevertheless, I don't care what business you're running, it's just hard to run yeah. a business in general, yeah. right? Like you wake up tomorrow morning and it's just hard. You know, you, have, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's no one to tell me tomorrow morning what to do in order to be able to be successful. There's no direct deposit that's waiting on the other end of this goal unless I generate revenue for my company. And so we all suffer that. So, so there's some similarities across the board. But with that being said, I went to prison as a 15-year-old kid. And I stayed in prison for almost a decade. I grew up there. I went through puberty in prison, right? Like, when everyone was getting driver's licenses and graduating and going to prom, and I was in prison calling home, making 15 minute, $18 collect calls to my mom and asking her to call my friends on three-way as I listened to them talk about how they were going on a senior trip. I went back to my cell and I cried because I knew how much of a failure I positioned myself to be because of a decision I made. And for years I had to deal with that, not a day or not two weeks or not six months, but 365 times I had to get up and I had to deal with that. And I had to do that eight times. Eight years I had to deal with that. The level of resilience that I had to innately build internally as a, to allow me to psychologically make it through that season of my life positioned me to come home. And when I'm starting my businesses, when I'm working inside and there's all of these massive mountains that I have to climb in order to be able to solve problems, whether it be in my company or for my team or for my family members, the problems don't really seem that big. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, I'm like, you know, it's not really a problem. And when I hear others talk about some of the issues that they have, you know, when we were fundraising, when we were first um, raising our first round of funding to bring in um, some, some venture capital, you know, we got told no so many times, but a lot of people get told no a bunch of times. And when, as I listen to some of my cohort members inside of some of the accelerators I was in, or when I go to colleges and universities and I talk to some of the students there that are a part of some of these programs and they talk about being, having a door slammed in their face, you know, 10, 15, 20 times. And I hear them thinking like, so talk, keep talking and tell me what the problem is. Because what did you think was gonna happen when you went out there to go start pitching your business? You thought that when you walked out there, everybody was gonna say yeah and write you a check the first time? Like, come on, you bugger.
<laughs> right? Like, I don't wear a necktie to work every right, day. Right, you know right, right. And when, like, you know, if, if I'm writing or if I'm in interviews, I'll use the euphemistic words that allow me to be able to convey a thought that will I help the, 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 the audience identify in, in a way that is, is common to their way that they communicate, to the way they communicate. But in any other environment, I talk like I'm talking right now to you. And this is how I communicate on a very, very daily basis. I'm, I'm my authentic self, so unapologetically, I'm Marcus. And because of that, um, I get boxed out of opportunities, simply because I, I show up authentically me. And, 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 and the resilience that I had as I went through prison, now transfers here, and so I'm like, yeah, I mean, no problem is a really big problem. No right. problem, I mean, nothing compares. In comparison, uh, some of the people, some of my peers who, you know, graduated from HBS or Wharton or, you know, Oxford, like, they're, I'm blessed to be in these rooms now, and it's such a major, I mean, a big deal when they have these issues. They're back into these corners, and they're falling apart. They're crippling, oh my gosh, I don't know how to solve this problem. And I'm like, that's a problem for you. <laughs> yeah, well, Marcus, you know what it seems like? It seems as if, you know, you can be all, you can have all the book smart, but you also have the street smart, that you have authentic leadership and you have resiliency to help overcome anything that's in your way. I think um, you said 41 times the doors were slammed in your face. And I got up every, at 41 times applying for jobs, the 42nd I got the job yet. Woohoo, 42nd is a good number then, huh? <laughs> I'm like, you know, it could have been 80 seconds and I would have continued but, to keep going. But that's right. the thing about the resiliency. You're going to keep on going. Yeah. I have a question. Uh, when we're thinking about the workforce and we're looking at returning citizens, you have been on the other end trying to knock on the doors and ask for a job. What can you tell employers to help with any anxiety they may have about employing re-entry or returning citizens based on your conversations you've had with yeah, I mean, that, that's a really good question. I struggle with that one as well, right? Because um, it's no red or blue pill. You know, I tell the same people, I'm like, you know, what's the reservations you have for somebody who just graduated from Howard University? Like, talk to me about the issues. You, tell me what are the, some of the concerns you have for them? And I could probably mirror them with the people that come out of prison. Now, on the flip side of it, I could talk about some of the benefits of, you know, employing people that's coming out of prison. I mean, someone's coming out of prison, is, I mean, I never thought I was going to be. Can you believe I'm in Cedar Rapids, Iowa? <laughs> Can you believe you're in Cedar Rapids, Iowa? I can't Iowa? believe I'm in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Either. Right? <laughs> and the thing of it is, is right, you know, the people who are coming out of these sales, they're saying similarly, it doesn't matter what opportunity they get, almost all of them are almost an unbelievable accomplishment. Because for years, sometimes, in my situation, almost a decade, and others, decades, plural, we've been told you'll never be anything. When I walked into prison, as a 15-year-old kid, the assistant warden walked to me, there were seven of us walking into the reception center, and we had to take off all our clothes, and we were literally naked. And that was my first time I was completely naked around a bunch of other grown men. I'm a 15-year-old kid, and everyone else is like 30s and 40s. And I'm standing there, and I have no idea what to say, what to do, my hands are shaking, my hands are sweating, I don't know what to say, I, like nothing is happening that's normal, that looked like what happened just a few weeks ago at Suitland High School while I was going to school, right? And the sister warden came in there and, with my body completely naked and me not even allowed to cover myself. I can't cover myself, right? If you, get, if you cover yourself, they'll see, the correctional officers will take you by both of your arms, slam you on the ground, they'll cuff you to backwards with your hands to your ankles, and then you'll lay there until they get the opportunity to be able to take you into solitary confinement. 
While I sat there and I knew I couldn't cover myself with all of my body sticking out and everyone else beside, standing right beside me, and he walked up and said, you're in the big leagues now. Welcome to the big leagues. I wonder what's gonna happen to you here. Oh, I heard you from DC. You're in Virginia too? Oh, you know them Richmond boys don't like boys from DC. Hmm. Hmm. Wonder what's gonna happen to you. And he walked off and as if I wasn't already fearful enough. And now I have to walk and, and deal with that and, 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 that, and, and, with how, and so from that moment on, everyone, every other correctional officer, I mean, not everyone, but, but a lot of the correctional officers, the counselors, um, the wardens, the majors, like almost every adult that had a badge on their chest, they would tell me how, how much of a horrible person I was and how I would never do anything upon release. And so I already didn't think I was going to win, and most people don't. So when you have an opportunity, to be able to go apply for a job, like I did, and you finally get that 40-second yes, you get that yes on that 40-second application, from the moment that that assistant warden told me I would be nothing, to that moment that I got that job, I felt like it was a possibility that I would lose. From that point forward, I was like, oh my gosh, I have an opportunity here. And what it created was a sense of loyalty to the employer, I never, I was like, yo, you ain't never got to worry about me going No, I will mix paint for the rest of my life. Yeah. So Marcus, did you ever ask the employer why they took a chance on you? Oh, when the other 41 did not? No, I didn't have to. I knew why I took a chance on them. And when a job application, they asked me, have you been convicted of a felony, comma, within the last seven years? I had served eight years in prison. So I was able to say, no, I haven't been convicted of a felony within the last seven years. The same Marcus from the first 41 applications was the same exact Marcus on the 42nd one, and I eventually became employee of the year and got promoted within nine months to a sales rep managing the entire DC metro region, selling more paint to this day than anyone has ever sold in a company of Sherwin-Williams. That's amazing. That is amazing. And here's the thing, right? The reality of it is that I woke up every morning not wanting to accomplish the goal of saying I want to set up, put my name on a wall with a record saying I sold more paint. The reality of it is that I just wanted to come home and win. I wanted to come home and prove to those correctional officers and that assistant warden that I was something more than the naked person that they saw when they sent me sitting on that bench when I got to Southampton receiving Southampton Reception Center. I wanted to prove to my mom that I wasn't wasting all of her postage or all of the money that she sent to me to go on my commissary books or all of those collect calls that she accepted from me when I was sitting in prison. I wanted to prove to my sister that I was as smart as the person who talked about the books that I read and the letters that I wrote her. I wanted to prove to my grandmother that she wouldn't die and leave this earth with, her, with the last memory of her grandson having an inmate number 247384. And the 600,000 people that are coming home from prison every day simply want to be able to check those boxes in their own lives. And so as employers, think about the possibility of bringing on people that just simply want to come home and win, let alone help you drive your revenues. I mean, Sharon Williams stock is doing really, really, really well right now, <laughs> you know? And, you know, not only are they going to, not only did I help contribute to that, but I just wanted to be able to make my mama proud. Yeah. Alliant Energy is a place where I can create the future, where my skills, creativity, and new ideas make a better tomorrow. I help deliver the energy powering moments that matter to you. It's where we care about the environment and our neighbors, a place where my talents and skills grow. My job isn't a job, 
It's my passion, my place, my purpose, because I am energy. See how you can put your energy to work at AlliantEnergy.com careers. You come from, from nothing to getting quarter million dollar investments from Boeing. John Legend is having conversations with you. And you just mentioned you like to prove all these people wrong. Do you ever think about some of the individuals in your life that you wanted to do business with that maybe turned their back on you? And do you, maybe you do business with them today or maybe they're knocking on your door today. Are you experiencing that and how does that feel? Because you, you, you've proven them all wrong. How does that yeah. feel? I mean, I still, I mean, the, the honest, I'm, I'm, I'm always caught in between this place where it's interesting that, you know, I come from a place where, I mean, I did have a felony, I have a felony in my record. And the majority of the, I mean, I would venture to say that the majority of people in this room today have never met a Marcus before. Right? Right? Yes? Right? Well, you're only one Marcus, so yes. <laughs> that, that, that too, right? But, 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 but the, the, a lot of the nameless faces that will appear on your social media feeds or in the media, they're a replica of a Marcus with a different last name, right? And... What I tell them, I'm like, Marcus, man, look, dude, you're approaching people and you're asking them for, you know, initially it was jobs. Now I'm asking for venture capital. I'm looking for social capital to allow me to create the introductions that will help me land relationships like the, the relationship that we landed with Boeing and Slack and Facebook and Apple. And it's a blessing to be able to have that. But when I think about the people that work in these HR departments, they've never met a Marcus before. The people that work in the corporate social responsibility departments, they've never met a Marcus before. They, they haven't come from neighborhoods or communities where they had cousins or uncles or brothers or sons in their families that have been relegated to the corners and the shadows of their neighborhoods and unfortunately end up on a defense table where they end up getting sentenced to eight years as 15-year-old kids for stealing a car. Because the people in their families, if they would have gotten caught for stealing a car, they would have got probation. I met them. One of the 16-year-old, I'm sorry, my co-defendant was 16, we went in a cell together. One of the 18-year-olds that were in the holding cell with me when I was getting sentenced, there was a home invasion, and he asked his gun actually accidentally discharged and shot the lady in the leg. He got house arrest, and he just didn't look like me. Same judge, I went in front of that judge, I was 15 years old, and I stole a car from someone, and no one got hurt. And I got sentenced to, by the way, I, got, I served eight years. I got sentenced to 23 years to life for stealing a car, right? And, 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 and when you think about what that means, like that, guy, the other, that 18 year old, his family members, you know what they did? They went out and said, you know what? Make sure, let's take the gun out of the house and make sure you don't use it anymore. And they went on about their life and who knows what he went on to go do, right? right? I mean, that's the reality of the, the situation of the people who run those CSR departments. That's their, that was their son. That was their uncle, that was their brother, right? And so, because I realized that, I'm like, Marcus, you have a, you have a responsibility to be able to not go into these conversations with malice in you. You, you can't go in with all of, the, all of the frustration and anger that was, that was baked into your, in, into your life as a result of witnessing this time and time again. If you actually wanna see change, Marcus, what you have to do now is walk into these same rooms and tell the story and be a person and be a human. And if you humanize your own, your own journey, take accountability for it, and introduce people to the way that the culture, of, the culture of what was happening in my community when I was growing up, then I believe 
And if I, do a, if I do my job right, then I will create a level of empathy that will allow for them to be able to hopefully see the next market that comes behind me in a different way. Right. Absolutely, I'm a firm believer that how you engage with someone, it is gonna stick in their mind. And if we're able to create positive interactions, then it's gonna allow positive interactions with someone else that may be in a similar situation as you. Looking at the mass incarceration, well, first of all, the inequities, I mean, they were blatant in your face. You just saw that with a fellow cellmate. Yeah. That has to be very hard to be able to stomach something like that, yet you said there's no malice in terms of you wanted to be able to impact change. So it's, it was hard. it's hard now looking back in hindsight. At the time, I thought that the judge was gonna was going to remember his case and then see my case, but oh, you know what, we made a mistake. That just didn't happen. So at the time, I wasn't upset or angry. It, it's in 2020, in hindsight, in hindsight, where I'm like, dude, how you going at this, man? But, you know, yes. So with the <laughs> high, high levels of mass incarceration that we're experiencing here in the U.S. compared to any other parts of the world, you're about justice reform. You've seen what's happening in the inside of the prison that you were in. What do you think needs to happen? What do you think, if you had a magic wand, next two things that is really gonna be critical to make some changes in the systemic institutions here? Yeah, so one of them I'm really proud of. Um, I sit on the board at the Justice Policy Institute and we worked on an academic research paper along with a bunch of legislators in D.C. It's one of the benefits of, work, of living in D.C., right? Like I can, I can walk up the street and I'm on a hill. Yeah. Um, and we were able to work with some of them and we launched the First Step app. Um, and since then, we've also partnered with the White House to be able to introduce the Second Step Act. Um, the First Step Act, giving you know, opportunities to people that are coming home from prison and helping to help create second chances. Second Step Act, giving employment opportunities to folks and bringing equity to, this, um, to HR practices. Uh, so that was one of the places as I think about like reentry, what reentry looks like. In my own personal life, you know, I mean, I feel like no child should be in adult prison. Um, and so we wanted to be able to uh, help pass legislation um, to prevent kids from going into prison. And we successfully did that in 48 states. So I'm excited about that. Um, wow. Which means we're keeping kids out of prison. What age range is that? Um, so uh, anything under the age of 18 in most states and up to some states um, like Connecticut where uh, it goes up to 20, I think up to 25, I believe. No, t 23. Um, There's some other, th you know, you're talking about justice reform. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on with the yes. wrong dependent system, right? Yes. But, you, you, know, I, I, you know, I'm an advocate of uh, eradicating solitary confinement. Solitary confinement is tough, you know. I mean, I, was, I sat in solitary confinement and literally talked to myself inside of a scratched up aluminum foil mirror that was above a toilet that was connected to my sink inside of a room that was six by nine for days and days on end and I hadn't even turned 16 yet. And, and that can do something to you psychologically, right? I mean, it's interesting, we toy around with uh, the idea of being on lockdown as a result of this pandemic that we just experienced and people are like, yo, it's tough, the mental my mental health has been completely disrupted as a result of having to be in a house and look at the same four walls and look at my same family members for an entire year without being able to interact and engage in other places, in other places especially with our children. And we had these conversations and we toyed around with it, but we advocate to put people inside of these isolated rooms 
that are much smaller than your house and without your nice refrigerator and all the things you have inside of it. And we're like, yo, nah, definitely lock them up and throw away the key. And so, you know, I, 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 I try to advocate for uh, eliminating solitary confinement. But that list goes on and on, and we just don't have enough time to talk about it. Oh, well, yeah. I know that um, we can definitely talk a lot more about that and your life story, which is very inspirational. Um, but now we're going to change the segment up here. What's on our listeners' minds? Ready to take some questions uh, from audience members. Any oh, questions, can, can, comments? Look, yes. Like, this is the safe space. So before we go into Q&A, I want you to be, like, this is the opportunity to ask the most uncomfortable questions. The questions where you're like, you know what, I don't even know if this is insulting, Marcus, but I just really, just, it's been on my mind. It won't be insulting to me. I want this to become the safe space. I want this to be able to be the environment or the room where we feel super comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's where real change happens. Yes. That's what allows us to be able to take this conversation back into our own homes, our own Facebook pages or Instagram pages or Twitter and be able to really create a conversation that erects change. So yes. I'm grateful for it. And yes, that's what diversity absolutely. straight up is for. We're always <laughs> keeping it real. So yes. as we're thinking about your own equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement journey, what questions do you have? <laughs> uh, can you talk about talking openly with your son um, regarding you know, race and bias and you know, a world that he has to grow up in? Um, as a white female, I was wondering when I you know, at trying to educate, unfortunately educating my parents um, last summer with uh, George Floyd and educating myself because I obviously did not know a lot of what was happening. I didn't really realize white privilege until last summer, unfortunately, very embarrassingly. Um, so when I have children, I really want to know, like, how do you approach that with children? Because I would love to start as early as possible without terrifying them, but also because I want to raise good children who understand their privileges and everything else. I still have a lot to learn, but how do you approach that with young kids? Great question. We'll just repeat it. Um, I'm going to paraphrase it. How do you have uh, conversations with your child or young children about race? Thank you so much for being brave and for asking a question I'm that so is on a lot of people's minds. It's at least mind. 20 people in this room that wanted to ask that same exact question. Yes. Yep. Kudos. Yep. I promise. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So I, I, I can give a, a, a few thoughts. I think it's important that you are, uh, it's okay to be honest with our children. You know, it's funny. When I was growing up, I used to hear stories about um, farm kids how hard they worked, right? They got up at five o'clock in the morning, they worked till nine o'clock, then they went to school and they worked till five o'clock, then they get home and work till nine o'clock at night. And that was hard, right? It was hard. So my, my question is, if we already know what it's like to live hard lives. We are, we're already teaching our kids, even in rural communities and urban communities to, to, to understand hard things in life. And my belief is it's okay to have challenging conversations with children in safe spaces because you have no idea how smart they really are, right? Um, I think we take the intelligence of our, of our kids for granted and it's important to understand that there's opportunities to have those conversations. So it's really about not being afraid, finding that, that time. Um, you don't have a conversation with your kid in front of their, 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 their friends. You know, maybe you're not embarrassing them, but you're having a conversation at home. But there's nothing wrong with having conversations, I think, that we perceive as challenging, and more, more, more often than not, it's probably more challenging for us than it is for the kids. So Anthony, you raised uh, biracial children. I so did. 
How did you have race relation conversations with them? You know, I had a lot of, I, there were times that I did not have conversations with my kids. I allowed them to learn their own lives and ask questions. And then I was able to take a question and turn it into a story. Take a question and turn it into a conversation. Um, but my, my kids are fortunate enough that, that I, I was able to raise them in an environment where they're able to see all types of culture. And I, and I, and I push that. Um, and it was important that I did that, living in a biracial family. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Please. My children are born here in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. I was born in India. And um, my daughter came home one day, I think a couple of years ago, and she's like, Mom, your skin color is lighter than mine. How come mine's darker? So we had conversation about skin, and she said, I don't see color. It's a very uh, beautiful thing because she says, I just want to look at somebody as a human. So she was saying that around her friend circle, she never thinks about their color of skin. And I said, well, honey, what if that individual is really proud of who they are in terms of their skin? And so I have these conversations in terms of where is someone on their cultural competency? And she's in a place where she's minimizing differences. Or no, she's and, uh, elevating similarities. And so it's that journey. And then I, and she's like, well, I identify as an American, not as an Indian. So we had another conversation. I said, that's a good thing. These labels, people put us in labels, they put you in a label, how do you feel, how do you identify? And I need to be respectful of that as well. And so we've had, a, and I said, the other thing is I said, um, race relations, I said, guess what? Race, race is something that we created as human beings. It's a social construct. And she's like, oh. And uh, so that's how we're just having authentic conversation. They're young. Guess what? They were born with technology. They go to the refrigerator with a laptop. Guess what? They're really connected with what is going on in this world. When it comes to diversity, they get it. For me, I think about the younger generations, it's really equity, inclusion, and engagement in the social media. But diversity is something that they are going to be embracing a lot more than some of uh, the other generations that we have here. Did so that answer great your question? Yeah. Great question. Yes. Yeah, that was, yes, we got another? Go ahead. You know, that, that was a great question. And, and again, I just want to pause to say thank you. Like, seriously, not, not, I, I do have to thank you because, again, I mean, there are a ton of people in this room. There are people online, and they, we, we all struggle with it, right? It doesn't matter what color you are, what neighborhood you live in, your social economic status. We all struggle with it. We all struggle with it. I have to have the same, I have to have the conversation with my son. Like, it's unfortunate. But like the neighborhood that, that, that we, I was talking to someone about this earlier this morning, the neighborhood that we work, my wife and I work so hard to live in the neighborhood we live in. And I have to tell my son, because of the neighborhood we live in, you can't walk to the basketball court by yourself. You can't, I'm so sorry. Now, if you, we lived in the neighborhood that I grew up in, I would let you go and walk to the basketball court and you do, you safe, you all right. And, and we work so hard to be in this neighborhood and you would think that we would be way more safe but you aren't safe in this neighborhood. You can't do that. And that's a hard conversation for me to have with my 10-year-old son, telling he can't walk to the basketball court by himself. And what that does is it spawns a conversation that I honestly don't even wanna have. I don't even wanna have. I don't even wanna tell him the reason, the fears that I have or the apprehension that I have as a result, because then it, it, it creates this snowball. And what I also don't want is I don't want him walking around the world with a big ball of hate as a result of how I articulate 
what has happened in the past to others that look like him that have tried to go to the basketball court by themselves but didn't come home that, that same night, right? That's challenging because I don't, I don't want him to walk around because the other thing that he, my son has to deal with as a result of my success, the rooms that we're in, we're typically the only ones that look like the, we're in the room. The, some of the, my closest friends are my white friends and I have to tell him, I'm like, yo, bro, like, this really is my, like, and he, I have to articulate to him because he's like, I don't understand because it, when we're at family dinner, and I'm being transparent, very transparent, we're at family dinner with all of my sisters and my aunts and my uncles, you know, everyone in the room looks like me and the conversations that we have, the frustration that we see when we turn on the news and you see somebody else is like, golly, you know what I mean? He's sitting in, he's absorbing that. He isn't, He's learning in that moment. And so it's creating something, it's crafting something that I don't even want to see in him. And so it's a struggle for us all to have these kinds of conversations. So for that, I just want to say thank you. Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. Absolutely. All right, we got one more question and then we got another segment, a fun segment. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your panel today. Again, thank you for your story. Um, my question is about the larger community and we see corporations now bringing people onto their boards, almost forced to do that by the SEC and some other organizations. We see diversity and inclusion officers, big splashy publications rolling out that these things are happening. We see um, efforts at the city, community, at the state level to make sure that we're doing things for diversity. What successes have you seen? How do you hold people accountable for these actions to make real change and not just press releases? I'm glad you wow. take that first. Go for it and I, then. I just, something just sent me just an idea. I'm, I'm gonna coin this so if you hear it somewhere else, I just <laughs> thought about it like right now. I'm tweeting it later, <laughs> tweeting it later. But I think, Pete, I think it's a great thing that we're having these discussions post-George Flade and, and, and corporations are putting out statements and, and doing things, but I like to what I call married to the moment. So how I judge organizations is, is a couple of ways. One is, are you married to the moment? So we're married today, but in six months when, the, when, when George is not, we're not thinking about George, what are you really doing? Did you just do a training today? Did you just do a statement? What's going on in your company? And number two is, what's your budget say? Right? Exactly. So we can have a lot of conversations, but what's the purse? When we open the purse, where's the money going? And that's not money to me or to, to Sadika or to Marcus. To, it's investing in the cause, in your people. And so there's a lot of organizations that have done great things and they're putting out great statements and that's wonderful. My judge is what are you doing at the purse and are you married to the moment? Because we can talk about it today, but when I see you in six months or when I see you in 12 months, are you as excited about that issue today as you are 12 months? And what does your pocketbook say in your company? up and going, this is what you said, this is what you did, this is the result which didn't make it to the, where you're going, and we don't do that part. Right. And so in, as a community, what successes have you seen where people have been able to, act, to affect that and hold people accountable and not just roll something out, hey, we're going to band-aid this with a statement and nothing happens, and you continue to have these problems. Yep. You should never take what you had to go through to make change. We shouldn't be outraged about George 
Floyd because it happened. We should be outraged that it was a possibility. Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. so interesting when you say that because I completely agree. Yeah. Great point. I was I was on a, one of the sessions earlier, and um, I know that there are laws that have been, as I said, being passed in certain states. And uh, this session was in was um, from someone from Missouri, and uh, their laws a lot more friendlier because of the Ferguson incident. So their state communities further advanced. I said, well, I don't want what happened in Ferguson or what happened in Minneapolis to happen in Iowa or any other state for us to impact change. I don't want that. I don't want my diversity business to be, you know, going gangbuster right. on the murder of uh, someone. I don't want that. To me, that's not a good feeling. Right. Your question about how do you measure success, I think that for, uh, for best practices, what I see with organizations where you have a commitment, from the leadership, the support, it's part of their strategic plan, they allocate money, resources, and it's not just the chief diversity officer's role. It is a role of every individual on the board and every individual on the leadership as part of their performance, and you're driving it throughout the organization, and you have a strategic plan around equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement that's tied to your overarching strategic plan that creates a, uh, you know, an agile roadmap for you to go on this journey with measurable outcomes. And I'm not talking about how many number of trainings you've done. Based on the training, what are you trying to impact change? That's the key, you measure those outcomes. More importantly, don't give up. Guess what, you're gonna fail. Yes, I said it, I'm gonna fail. Why? Because we're humans, we make mistakes. But you learn from those mistakes, have that growth mindset. And when you make, when something happens, stop, assess, course correct, Keep on going. But guess what? It's not going to happen overnight. Changes are not going to happen overnight. It may take five years. It may take ten years. Remember that. To celebrate the small wins. But I think that's what success for me looks like. Right. Purchasing power. I know we got another segment. But to real quick, to, to kind of wrap up, put a bow around, around what can you do to hold people accountable. In your situations where you're at, if you feel the place of business or the organization that you're working with does not align with your values, then you have a choice. Yep. And your choice is, am I going to stay in this organization or am I going to use my voice in this organization to ask for change or am I going to leave? In your community, you have a choice from a policy standpoint, you all have a choice, you have your vote. I, I never knew how valuable it was to vote locally uh, until maybe 10 years ago. I, 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 I want to kick myself that I wasn't a local voter. Um, and I don't care what party, what political, where you come from, your vote for your causes matter. And so that's how you hold people accountable. You, you leave your job if you're not happy and you go work somewhere else. And uh, I can tell you a long story about Victoria's Secret. My daughter's a fashion model. And I can tell you a long story about their trajectory and what's happened to them because they didn't focus on their customer base. Um, another long story, but I just wanted to wrap you up. Voice and, and, and ability to walk away. Yes. 30 seconds, 30 seconds, I promise. 30 I promise. seconds. I promise, I promise, I promise. You can put me on a time, I promise, 30 seconds. What you're describing, is emotional activism. You see it on TV, you feel bad, and you want to do something about it. Once that, and that, as that, as that emotion is lingering, you feel committed to the cause. As the conversation, the conversation dwindles, so does the emotion. That's emotional activism, and it has to stop. The solution, that's what I want to identify and put a name on it so you can, you know, you can call it what it is. The solution, bring people like me. So like, one, the economic, 
what is the, what is the economic structure of what it is, how you're solving this problem? Where's the bread land? Where's the money landing? And how are, who are you bringing in at the executive leadership levels that look like me that will help you tie it back to the mission overall to the community? Because I promise you, if you bring, if, if it's a board full of, if it's a board full of middle-aged white men that are making this kind of decision to increase their DNA, their DNI, I mean, what you think was going to happen six months from now? Because they don't, they're walking with a level of privilege, but they don't have to have them my kind of issues, right? But if you bring me into the ballroom, I promise you, I'm gonna get on your nerves every Monday morning. I'm like, all right, so look, let's go back. I know we're working on that, but let's go back to this. We said that we were going to allocate funding to this problem. And I think that the best, the, the people that's, cl that's closest to the problem are the closest to the solutions. Yep. All right, so this is a fun part of the- I'm excited about this. You are guys you? holding the balls in your hand. This well, I hope Entrefest and this place has a liability. Thank goodness it's a softball. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not good at throwing balls here, but these are softballs, a diversity thumb ball. We'd love to have a couple volunteers if you want to join in on this fun game. If you want to join in, please uh, come to the front. It'll be easier to kind of toss it to you. So come on up. So these balls, to, you want to explain them? Yeah, so um, there's prompts and questions on these diversity thumb balls. Um, these are great icebreakers. So what we do is, first of all, it's a safe space to be able to have conversations, um, reserve judgment, and um, just authentically respond to the question or the prompt that your hand lands on when we throw it to you, okay? So if Anthony throws it to me, wherever my thumb lands, read uh, out the prompt or question, and then please share, okay? I love this. So I think we um, have, um, oh, we I'm going people? to step out and because we're gonna allow our participants to go. Sounds good. So um, do you wanna, why don't you do the honors and throw it out to the audience here? Whoever wants to, we have, I think, maybe two, three. Let's do it. All right. Ready? My name's Troy. Uh, so I've got, describe the messages you received about race when you were growing up. Uh, you know, I grew up in a small uh, Iowa farming community, and, um, as I got older, I realized uh, just kind of people talking around that like, there aren't blacks in my community because the community drove them out anytime they came in. And I, it, it, for me, it started opening my eyes to like, I, I had no idea. And um, you know, it's, it's a shameful past, as, as much as the United States has, whether it's 100 years ago or 200 or, or in the past 30 years. Um, so that was like this, this, met, this silent message that I grew up through and didn't even know and had to be told later on and then reflecting on it, I realized the impact of it on, on one small Iowa right. community. What's your name again? Troy Miller. Troy, thanks for that. Troy, thank, thank, you, thank you, Troy. you so much. And just for you participating. Keep the ball. You can keep the diversity keep the ball. ball. Oh, Make it to work, winning, Troy. winning. Yeah, winning, winning. <laughs> Always about it here. Thank you for that. All right, so ready for the next one? Yes. You want me to throw it? <laughs> Liability, Anthony, liability. <laughs> so my name is Skylar, and I got a time you went out of your way to make someone feel included. Um, <laughs> so 
So, like, as a volunteer service dog trainer, I am aware of some of the unique challenges that those that require service dogs have. So anytime I see someone with the service dog, whether I have my, like, foster with me or not, I always make sure to go out of my way to ignore the dog because I know that that can cause some issues or unwanted attention. So... That's great. Wow. That's great. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. My daughter thank just got you. a service dog. Uh, she travels. She travels with the little little poodle. She's able helps with stress. So she yeah. she travels with it. Really enjoys her dog. I'm I'm mad she's leaving Sunday, and I don't want her to take the dog home. <laughs> well, you are such an inspiration. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I'm just going to toss in whoever gets it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> uh, my name is Micah Colbert. Um, I have, how might you personally combat prejudice, prejudice and discrimination? Uh, something that my wife actually recently talked about. Uh, she's a part of the knitting community. I don't know if we have any knitters um, but uh, they actually uh, became quite involved in being uh, activists. And one of the things that she uh, shared with me is stand in the gap. Mm. Mm. So wherever you are, if you see something going on and you're not okay with it, uh, stand in the gap. Um, and that's, that's all I have to say. I like that. Stand wow. in the gap. I, mean, I like that. I mean that. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. I have my Tim with you. Well, what an inspirational um, show this has been. Thank you so much for being part of this. Marcus, I don't know how else we can thank you. We appreciate your story and journey and for really helping to drive equity, diversity, inclusion, and engagement. And uh, so thank good. you to EntreFest. And we also want to give a special shout out to our sponsors of Diversity Straight Up. Uh, Green State Credit Union, we appreciate you. From City of Cedar Rapids. Alliant Energy. Energy. We, we really appreciate and our Collins Aerospace. And, Aerospace, and special thanks to those that are joining in uh, virtually and to all of our listeners who are going to hear this uh, recording afterwards. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, please send it to info at diversitystraightup.com. And if you like this show, if you feel that um, we need to continue to do it, season two, by Quarter Business Journal, please subscribe, please share, please like, please love us. Absolutely. Um, that'll help for us to continue to do the work that we're doing. As we always say, we're bubbling out of Iowa, going global. So please um, yeah. help us through that. Wherever you live, work, and play, just, just realize you know, that uh, diversity is in your backyard and, and have a conversation about it. Like we always say, diversity straight up. Keeping it real. Thank you for your time. Thank you to our listeners, as we wouldn't be here without your support. Help us grow our subscriber base by sharing our show with others. Love this new episode of Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union? Then head over to the most popular podcast audio platforms to describe, rate, and review us. And check out our other episodes while you're there. Catch us on our next episode, which drops monthly. We'd love to hear from you. Hit us up and send your questions, comments, and suggestions to info at diversitystraightup.com. Remember, wherever you live, work, and play, our backyards are increasingly global. It's not enough to simply be a leader. Be a global leader by leveraging diversity with equity, inclusion, and engagement. And share your journey. This may empower others to be bold change agents. 
Be courageous. Be authentic. Be vulnerable. Diversity Straight Up, brought to you by Green State Credit Union. Keeping it real.